following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, this morning we're starting a, a new series. Today's the first Sunday of Lent, the season of Lent in the uh, Christian calendar or the church calendar. And Lent is a time for about uh, five or six weeks leading up to Easter, a time that Christians use to prepare their hearts and minds for Easter. So often Easter springs up on you because it's at a different time each year, just kind of catches you by surprise. And Lent is a way that Christians have used for centuries to prepare themselves for Easter week and to really engage their thoughts and their heart and mind around the events of Jesus' death and His resurrection. So what we're going to do over the next uh, five or six weeks is we're going to focus on the cross and the significance of Jesus' death on the cross for us. We're going to do a series called Images of the Cross. If you've seen a movie like Passion of the Christ or any one of the, the movies about Jesus' life that depicts His death, then you've seen something of the horror that crucifixion is. You've seen those, those events vividly, graphically portrayed with Jesus on the cross and the brutality, all of the brutality that goes along with that. And the thing with those movies is that we get very drawn to the physical aspects of that because they're so horrible and it's grotesque and that tends to be the focus. But what I want to do over these few weeks is, is, is look at what you didn't see in The Passion of the Christ. Look at what wasn't represented because beyond the physical we want to ask what was happening in the spiritual realm when Jesus died what was the significance theologically spiritually within the context of God's whole redemptive story what is the significance of Jesus death another way of asking the question is what was God doing on the cross what was Jesus truly doing on the cross? What was the Spirit of God doing on the cross? And what possible benefit does that have for us? So we're going to not, not focus so much on the physical aspects, the trial and the crucifixion itself. We're going we're to look at what was the deep centrality and significance of the death of Jesus. When you look at the New Testament and the way that Jesus' death is interpreted, it tends to be that the biblical authors use a range of metaphors to describe Jesus' death. So different images are used or different word pictures, and that's understandable because we're trying to explain something, they're trying to express something that is ultimately inexplainable and inexpressible. What truly happened on the cross is not something that we can grasp and bottle up and explain in a couple of neat phrases. We're all grasping for language to try and express something that really pushes the boundaries of human language. So what the biblical authors do is they use metaphor, and metaphor is a great tool because it uses things that we do know. It uses objects and areas of life, realms of life, to explain things that we don't know and can't explain and have a hard time getting our head around. That's how metaphors work. And so you find as you read the New Testament that there are a range of metaphors that are used to describe Jesus' death. And what we'll do over the next few weeks is look at each of the major metaphors in the New Testament that describe the death of Jesus. And each of them are taken from a different area of life in the first century, a different realm of life. So the law court or the battlefield or the family, or the temple altar, or the slave market, as we'll talk about today. Each of them a different sphere of life, and each of them shedding different light on the significance of Jesus' death. No one metaphor is more important than any other. No one metaphor trumps the rest of them. Each of them sheds different light and unpacks the death of Jesus in a different way. And so we'll look at them each in turn. 
And before we jump into today's one, let me just define one term for you that I'm going to use a lot in this series. It's the word atonement. We talk about the atonement uh, as being the death of Jesus. The best way to think about that word atonement is to break it down into its syllables, at one meant. Okay, at one. This is the process by which God makes us at one with him. That's what atonement means. Centrally through the death of Jesus, but not just through his death, God makes us at one with him. That's what we mean when we say atonement, okay? So just keep that in mind, write it down if you need to, and I'll use that word uh, numerous times, so now we've got a definition. Okay, so this morning, we're going to start by looking at the image of the slave market. The slave market, one of the key metaphors in the New Testament to talk about the death of Jesus, the slave market. Now, it's not an image maybe that is quite as familiar to us because we don't live in a country that practices human slavery, but it's not difficult to get your head around. Let me start with this picture or this scenario. Imagine that you are living in a country in the first century and the army from your country has just gone and conquered another city in another country. They've gone in, they've, they've plundered the city, they've killed a whole bunch of people, and they've taken a whole lot of people captive. This commonly happened. When an army went into a new town, new city, conquered the city, they would just get a bunch of citizens, didn't even really know who they were, they'd just round them up and they'd take them back to the home country as slaves. So imagine that's happened and now these slaves from the conquered country line up and there's a huge slave auction, big slave market, and people are bidding to, to buy different slaves. And then in the crowd, one particular bidder emerges and it turns out that he is not from your country, he's from the country that you just conquered. And what has happened is that some of the surviving citizens of that country have got together and they've passed a helmet round and they've raised a bit of money. And they've sent this guy as an ambassador back to your country and now he's going to bid to free one slave. Because there was someone who was included in that group of slaves who's a very important citizen back home. So this guy's raised enough money, he bids, he wins that slave, or he wins the auction, he buys that slave, but not so that the person becomes his personal slave, so that the person is released and can go back to the home country. Does this make sense? This actually happened. I mean, this is not fairy tale. This really happened in the first century. Often it would happen, especially with uh, noble citizens, uh, VIP citizens who were captured and enslaved by foreign nations. Someone would come and would purchase that slave and return them to their home country, even though it might have been conquered, as a freed person. The price that they paid to secure the freedom of that person was called a ransom, and the process of paying a ransom to set them free was called redemption. So that's where that word comes from, redemption. We typically think that it's a very spiritual word. We talk about being redeemed, we talk about redemption, almost always in churchy contexts. But it never started that way. It was a purely secular term. It just referred to this process of buying back a slave to purchase their freedom. Redeeming someone meant to pay a price of money so that they could go free. And you could do this in all kinds of ways. You have a generous benefactor who would come along, pay the right amount of money, and through his payment, that particular slave would be set free. There's scenarios in the Old Testament where this happened. If a person became so poor that they had to sell themselves into slavery and they had no other option just to survive, they had to sell themselves into slavery, then their family retained the right of redemption. So after a certain period of time, the family members could pay an amount of money and that person would be redeemed. They would be bought back by the family and they would be set free, not to be a slave anymore, but to be free. So, so basically, redemption at its heart means deliverance at cost. It's the best way to think about it. It means freedom or deliverance to purchase someone's freedom or deliverance at cost. There's always a cost. There's always a ransom that has to be paid. 
So this was just the way of economic life in the first century and in many ancient societies. Redemption happened all the time as slaves were bought and sold. And in the Old Testament, that word redemption begins to be used of God. And it begins to be used as a way of describing who God is and what he has done and what he is doing on behalf of his people. And the great event that that's connected to in the Old Testament is the Exodus. God is described as a redeemer by virtue of what he did in freeing his people from slavery. Now you think about it, 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 it really is right in the slave image. He's, he's taken his people out of slavery in Egypt and he has purchased their freedom in Canaan settled them in their own land and given them freedom. Let me read a verse or two to you that describes this, describes God as a redeemer from Psalm 77. Verse 14. You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. So God has redeemed his people. He has stretched out his arm and he has brought them out of slavery and he has brought them into freedom, not to make them slaves again, but he has purchased their freedom. Now, the question is, what was the cost for God to do that? If redemption is always deliverance at cost, what did it cost God to do that, to undertake the exodus? Well, it cost him binding himself to this insignificant group of slaves, this people group, entering into a covenant with them. It cost him putting up with all their grumbling, their complaining, their murmurings against him, their rebellion. It cost him being very long-suffering with them. It even cost him descending down into a tabernacle to fill that with his presence and his glory right among the camp of his people. It cost God a fair amount. He sacrificed a lot to walk with his people, to journey with his people, to tolerate his people over such a long period of time. God was prepared to pay that cost, in a sense to pay that ransom, in order to redeem his people, bring them out of slavery and into freedom. Now, turn over to Mark chapter 10. And we come to the words of Jesus, who picks up on this ransom imagery and the slave market imagery in reference to his own death. Bring all of that thinking about redemption in the Old Testament now to the words of Jesus and the significance of the cross. And this, this passage in Mark 10, Mark 10 verse 45, is significant because it's one of only two times in the Gospels where Jesus talks about the significance of his own death. So there's several times where he talks about the fact that he's going to die, but there's only twice this and the Last Supper, where he interprets his death and sheds some light on its meaning. So this is an important verse because it tells us what Jesus thought his own death was going to accomplish. What did Jesus think was going to happen when he died? Here it is, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's interesting, isn't it? When Jesus comes to describe and explain his own death, he reaches for the slave market image. He reaches for the image of ransom. And straight away, the word ransom takes you into the world of the slave market, into this practice of redemption. So for Jesus to say that, and that's a very succinct statement, there's several things implied automatically. One is that if Jesus is coming to pay a ransom, if his life is going to be a ransom, then he is going to be dealing with slaves. He's going to be dealing with people who are enslaved. Ransom is only paid if there's some kind of form of slavery that people are in. And Jesus himself said it in John 8.33. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. So Jesus and the entire witness of Scripture describes humanity as in a condition of slavery. In a condition of slavery to sin. That sin is a force that enslaves us. Even though we make a free choice to sin, it becomes a force that enslaves and entraps us in our life. 
And even though our Western culture tells us that we are free individuals, that we are autonomous, that we are able to make our own choice, and we have a plethora of choices we can make every day as consumers, fundamentally our identity as human beings is slaves. We're slaves to sin. You might not feel like a slave, you might not think you're a slave, but that's the category that the Bible puts us all in. We are slaves to sin because we make choices. Ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit they weren't supposed to eat, they became slaves. Their will was enslaved, their body, their entire being, their entire identity was enslaved to sin. And we just keep that trajectory going in our lives. And even the, the irony is that even when we think we're being free, making these choices, I'm just following my heart, I'm just living free. You know what you are? You're enslaved to your own selfishness. You're enslaved to your own desires and your own passion. That's not freedom. That's just another form of slavery. There was a documentary a little while ago. I don't know whether you saw it on TV, in TV One on uh, this guy who had uh, a pathological chronic hoarding addiction. So his house, you, you couldn't actually enter through the front door. It was so much stuff, piles of paper mainly, that he had to crawl through a window to get in. And as, as the camera followed him around his house, he's sort of squeezing you know, between these stacks of paper just to get around. He couldn't sleep on his bed. That was too full of stuff. He had a little gas cooker surrounded by paper in his kitchen that he cooked his food on. And, and interestingly, there was one point in the documentary where a clinical psychologist came in and, and she stood in his kitchen and said, so do you see any rubbish here? Like, is that rubbish? He said, no, that's not rubbish. I could think of a use for that. What about this over here? Oh, no, well, that could be used for this, this, this. What about this? And it became quite apparent that he doesn't see any rubbish. She said, that's the thing. You could put a rubbish bin in the middle of the kitchen. He's not going to use it because nothing in this room to him is rubbish. So it shows you the deception of a person's mind and how enslaved he is to a reality that is so distorted and so far from the perception of the true circumstances that he's enslaved to this perception of reality where everything has a use and nothing is rubbish. And it's an extreme example, but it's symbolic, I think, of where we all are and how we all operate, that we are all slaves to this distorted picture of reality, our own picture of reality, our own selfishness, our own narcissism that, that just keeps us locked in this selfish pattern of thinking and behaving and acting. We're all slaves to a distorted reality and to distorted patterns of relating and acting towards God and towards others. Now, the great news of the gospel is that Jesus comes to us as our redeemer. So here we are sitting in the slave market of sin, as it were, all of us. And Jesus comes as our redeemer and he pays this ransom so that we can go free. That's what Jesus is talking about, that he's going to give his life, not a sum of money. But on the cross, Jesus gives his life as a ransom payment to free us from slavery to sin. Now, why did Jesus have to give his life? Why not just a sum of money? Why not something else? Why did he have to die? Well, come back again to our identity as sinners. If our slavery was just an economic condition, just a social status like human slavery, then all that would be required would be an economic payment, a financial payment, and we'd be free. But our slavery goes to the core of our identity. Our slavery contaminates and corrupts every fiber of our being. We are so thoroughly shot through with sin that it affects us. It affects us in the very core of our being. So a ransom payment of, of, of money or, or some other commodity is not going to get to the heart of the problem because sin is an all-of-life issue for us. 
It encompasses and consumes our entire lives. And so if there's going to be a ransom payment made for our sin, it's going to have to be an entire life. Because sin consumes our whole life. If there's going to be a ransom, it needs to be an entire human life. That's how exhaustive our condition of slavery is. And it's not just going to be able to be another slave that frees us. can't just be another person. One slave can't pop up with the ransom payment to spring another slave. Where's he going to get that money from? He's a slave. It's going to have to be someone from outside, outside the slave market who comes in, right? You see why this couldn't just be any old person who makes this ransom? It couldn't just be anyone who turned up. Peter couldn't have said, well, I'm just going to give my life as a ransom to set humanity free. Couldn't work because he's a slave to sin too. He's sitting in the slave market like everyone else. It had to be from the outside. So Jesus, the Redeemer, comes from heaven. God himself, in the form of Christ, comes and gives his life for us to set us free. And in doing so, it's the most profound part of the atonement is that God himself enters into our slavery. doesn't just stand on the outside and pay some money, pay something, give his life. He enters into the reality of our slavery. Jesus became a slave. That's how far you have to go with this. Jesus became a slave. Put it in stronger terms, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin. Put it in stronger terms again, Galatians 2. He became a curse. Those words are all there in the New Testament. It's not just that Jesus made some transaction. He became a slave. He became sin. And he became a curse for you and I. He entered into the fullness of our sinful identity without becoming a sinner himself and without sinning. But he became sin. He became a slave, took on the fullness of what it means to be enslaved to sin. And in assuming that upon himself, his life was counted as an acceptable ransom so that we could be set free from slavery. Now, some people at this point get a little bit perplexed about the question of the ransom. Jesus says, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And, and people have asked in the history of the church, well, who was the ransom paid to? You know, usually you pay the ransom to the slave owner to set him free. So theologians have wrestled with this. And there was one guy in particular, Gregory of Nyssa in the early church, who came up with this whole elaborate theory that God paid the ransom of Jesus' life to Satan to set us free. Because Satan, in theory, is the one who holds our lives in bondage. He's kind of like the slave master of sin. So maybe God paid Satan with the commodity of Jesus' life so that we could be set free. Now, can you see the problems with that, with that theory? What, what does that make God into? A lesser being, doesn't it, than Satan? It's like God's at the mercy of Satan. He has to kind of grovel with this, with this offering of a ransom to, to appease Satan. God has all power. He's way more powerful than Satan. God doesn't have to bow down to Satan, offer some, placate him with some ransom payment. God didn't pay this ransom to Satan to try and spring us out of jail. The point, and this is where we're pushing the boundaries of the, of the whole metaphor, but the point of the ransom metaphor is simply to remind you how incredibly costly it was for God to redeem you. That's the point. That's really the, the only point. You try and make it say a whole lot of other things and the metaphor breaks down. The point is that your redemption, your freedom is unbelievably costly to God. Cost Him hugely. It's free for you. Cost Him everything. 
That's the point. God didn't pay the ransom to any particular person. Don't, don't go down that trail. The point is that it's costly. First Peter says this in First Peter 1.18. It was not with uh, silver and gold. It was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That's the point of this image of the cross, that God delivered you at great, great cost cost him his own dear son to send him on your behalf that he lived and died and took on the fullness of your slave condition look at that another way it cost god his own willingness to descend into our humanity that god himself took our slavery hung on the cross for us became a slave for us to free us that's how much god loves you this just speaks to the extravagant love of the father for you doesn't it isn't that where this metaphor points you that as you look at it and, you, and, and the more you see the incredible cost of your redemption, the more that you're led to say, the cross shows me the lavish love of the Father and just how incredible his heart for me and you was that he's prepared to do this out of his own free will, didn't have to, wasn't under any obligation. He could have just left us enslaved to sin, but so great was his desire for relationship with us that God sent his son. That's how much he loves you. That's how desperately he loves you. Think of the words of that old hymn, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. That's what the ransom idea tells us. That's how deep the sacrifice of Jesus goes. And the result for us is that we're free, that we're redeemed. Turn over to Ephesians 1 for a moment. There's a lot of passages we could look at. The word redeemed crops up so often, but Ephesians 1 puts it really well. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. Don't you love the word lavished? It doesn't just say the riches of God's grace, but the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. This is, lav- this is undeserved, unexpected unmerited favor that's what grace is and we have redemption now we are free those of us who are united to jesus who have accepted this ransom on our behalf because you've got to reach out and accept it those of us who are united to jesus we are redeemed we are freed people no longer under the curse of sin no longer in slavery to sin we are utterly freed now it doesn't mean you're not going to sin again. It doesn't mean that you're going to be suddenly a perfect person. We're going to screw up and mess up and stuff up all the time. We will every day. That's our reality. But you're no longer, if you know Jesus, you're no longer in the realm of sin. You're no longer in the slave market. You're no longer under the control of sin as your slave master, being dictated to by it. Sin is no longer your master. If you are in Christ, you've been set free. And the only reason now that we sin is because we choose to go back into the slave market. We choose to go back and put on the ball and chain and bind ourselves to sin again. That's the sad reality of our lives. But that's not our fundamental identity now. We are in Christ. We are redeemed. We are forgiven people, past, present, and future, redeemed through what Jesus has done to us and for us. So if you want to know who you are, look at the cross. It tells you. If you're not sure about your own self-identity, look at what Jesus has done for you. The cross tells you who you are. You are redeemed. You are chosen and you are unbelievably loved by God that he'd give his only son to redeem you and set you free. 
If you're not sure whether God loves you, look at the cross and look at the lengths that he's gone to to free you from the slave market. And if you feel hopeless and burdened by your own sin, look at the cross and look at what God has done to purchase your freedom. So the question for us then becomes, how do we live as redeemed people? And what does it mean to live in the shadow of all this? of what God's done for us. How do we outwork this redemption in our lives? Turn over to Romans 6 for a minute. Another very short verse, Romans 6, 18. Paul says, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now there's a paradox there, isn't there? Because we sort of assume you're set free from sin, you used to be a slave, now you're free. And of course that's true, but Paul puts it in an interesting way. You're set free from sin, and now what's happened? You're a slave. It sounds like we've just transferred from one form of slavery to another. But this is the paradox at the heart of freedom for a Christian. Freedom is not just freedom to go do whatever you like, freedom to just pursue your own desires and passions and interests and preferences. That's not freedom at all. That's another form of slavery. That's slavery to self, and it's back to slavery to sin. Freedom is living within God's created intent for you. Freedom is living as you were created to live in relationship with God and then allowing that to be central in your relationship with others. And you are never more free than when you bow the knee to Christ and submit your life to Him. That's the irony, isn't it? You're never more free than when you say, I'm a slave to Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul, he talks about freedom all the time, how important it is how much we're free in the Spirit. Don't go back to slavery. But how does he begin most of his letters? Paul, a servant of God. Actually, the Greek is bond servant, lowest form of slave, bond slave, in chains. And somehow we've got to hold this together. We are free, but we're slaves. Or maybe we could say we're freed slaves. We're freed, but the purest form of our freedom is to submit our will and our bodies and our desires and our relationships and our money and everything else to Christ and to confess Him as Lord. That's what freedom truly looks like, is following now in the way of Jesus and outworking that salvation through pursuing the freedom that God has got for us. Because freedom is not just freedom from something. It's always freedom for something. We're not just free from sin. What are we free for? Righteousness, holiness. We're free for the life that Jesus has purchased us. We're set free. God wants us to be free from fear. For what? Peace. He wants us to be set free from bitterness. For what? Love, reconciliation. Set free from impurity. For purity. There's always a from and a to with freedom. Paul says in Galatians 5, you've been set free, don't use your freedom now as an excuse to sin. Live in the freedom that God's offered you. Last Sunday, those of you that were here, you remember we did that exercise with the little uh, flyer that asked, what is God doing in your life right now? And a lot of you filled those out, and quite a few of you handed them into the boxes. And on Tuesday afternoon, I took these two boxes of all of those flyers that had been handed in, and I went and sat in the Birkenhead War Memorial Stadium overlooking an empty field. And I sat in the stands on a beautiful afternoon, and I just started reading one by one, all of those that had been handed in. And as I read them, I prayed for each person. Um, so I, if you handed one of those in, I've prayed for you, even though I don't know who you are. In most cases, some of you put your names on them. But 
just prayed for, for what you'd written down, that God would, would come alongside you and help you in those areas. It was amazing reading through all those flyers. I won't share them with you because I want to respect the confidentiality that you wrote them in, but it was just incredible reading that. Really moving experience. And heartbreaking at times. So your honesty in, in describing some, some gut-wrenching situations that some of you are going through and what God is teaching you in the midst of that. And some of the areas of your lives that God is putting His finger on and calling you to be free from certain things. In fact, the two greatest things that came up in that regard were fear and selfishness. It's interesting. Interesting in view of the fact I talked about fear as one that I sensed God was already working on in many lives. Fear and selfishness just kept coming up. All different contexts, different ways, fear and selfishness. And then some of you, there, there were really great opportunities that you've got to serve other people, things that God's putting in front of you that He's encouraging you to step into, changes or transitions in life that you're trying to negotiate. So many different stories. It's incredible to get a picture of all the things that God is doing among us. It reminded me that God is truly at work among us. Not always in the great, big, overt ways, but the quiet work of changing and shaping people's lives. And you know what that is? Every one of those flyers, it's people figuring out how to live as redeemed people. It's people figuring out what it means now. Jesus has redeemed me. How can I live in this freedom? How can I embrace it and what does it truly mean to be free? Every one of those stories is a picture of that in motion. And people listening to God and seeking to partner with Him in moving away from slavery to sin, freedom from selfishness, freedom from fear, freedom from whatever, and seeking to walk this freedom road. Freedom for peace, freedom from anxiety, freedom for a hopeful future, freedom for better relationships with others, freedom for a more selfless orientation in your marriage or with your kids, whatever it is. And people just walking this road and sometimes taking more steps back than forwards and just still saying, you know, I, I need freedom from my own self-guilt and shame because I mess up and then I just get tied in slavery of, of condemnation again and I need to be freed from that. But we're all just figuring out what it means to live as redeemed people. This is an incredible thing that God is doing among us and this is what it means to live in the shadow of the cross. Jesus has redeemed us. You need to know that. Jesus has redeemed you. And with that is an invitation to live as a redeemed person and to live into and lean into that freedom that he's called you to live in. So you look at the cross through that lens of the slave market, through that lens of redemption, what do you see? What do you see as you look at the cross? You see the amazing cost, don't you? The amazing cost that it was to God the Father to purchase our freedom. So easily forgotten. But just let that soak in again. Incredible cost. Always deliverance at an extreme cost. And we see the reality that we are redeemed people. And we need to remember that, especially on our worst days. When we're feeling depressed about our own weakness, our own failure, our own inability to even live up to our own expectations, let alone God's expectations. You've got to remember, you are redeemed. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. Set free. Read Ephesians 1.7 again. You are redeemed by the grace that God has lavished on you. And then, in view of that, see the cross as an invitation. An invitation to a new way of life. That grace never leaves you where you are. The cross never leaves you where you are. It takes you. He takes you right where you are, but always calls you on to freedom. And there may be something right now God's putting his finger on and saying, I want you to be free from this. I want you to be free from this issue. Free from this area of selfishness. I've died so it can happen. 
And now I want to encourage you and walk with you in that area of freedom. And he may be calling you into that new experience of freedom as you cooperate with the Holy Spirit and the work that he wants you to do in your heart. We are redeemed people. And so let's live out that redemption through the strength of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that we are redeemed this morning, that our chains are gone and we are set free. And I just pray now, Lord Jesus, for anyone here who doesn't know you, anyone here, Jesus, who's still in the slave market of sin, and I pray you'd open their eyes this morning, that they would see you walking towards them as their Redeemer and they would accept the ransom that you've paid for their lives and allow that prison door to swing open and walk into your incredible freedom for the first time. Lord, we are redeemed people. Teach us what it is to live in that redemption and to practice the way of the cross in our lives. We're not who we used to be. We are redeemed people. Help us to take your hand and accept that invitation into the new redeemed life you offer us. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.